Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and as you well know, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the very end of Canto 9 of Purgatorio. We have been through so very much material in Purgatorio already. I guess that doesn't even mention Inferno behind us. <laughs> Think how far we've come from that dark wood. Good grief. If you think back to, I don't know, Francesca or Chaco, you think all the way up to Ulysses or Satan or Cato or Casella or Balacqua, this just unbelievable amount of territory that we have been over. But we're about to end the canto that allows Dante into purgatory proper in his walk across the known universe. This is my English translation of Purgatorio Canto 9, lines 130 through 145. You can find this on my website, markscarborough.com, or walkingwithdante.com. You can go out there, and even better yet, you can drop a comment at the bottom of each episode, a comment that can open a conversation with me and with others who are walking either with us or will be coming behind us. In any event, let's get to it. The end of Canto 9, lines 130 through 145, the final entrance into Purgatory. Then the angel pushed open the door itself in the holy gate and said, Go in, but I must warn you both that anyone who looks back will be made to turn back. And when the sacred door's pins, which were strong and sounded out with lots of metallic noise, turned in their hinges, the Tarpeian rock didn't scream so loud nor seem so hard as when the good metalus was drawn off and it was all left barren. I wheeled around to pay attention to a new sound and I seemed to hear Te Deum Laudamus in a polyphony of voices with a sweet tonality. It's the same sort of experience I have when I hear singers who are accompanied by an organ. That is, some words are understandable and others are not. Oh, man, we have gotten to a passage that has befuddled scholars for 700 years. There is probably no ending of any canto across comedy that has provoked so much thought, spilled so much ink, caused so much discussion as this ending of Canto 9. No wonder Canto 9 is an infamous canto. It is so difficult. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to unpack some of the references here. There's a reference to the turning back, which is really important to listen to. There is that Tarpeian rock bit, and we want to really unpack that because it's the real trouble in the passage. And then we want to finish out with the hymn, Te Deum Laudamus, as well as the notion of polyphony and singing and what that means to comedy as a whole, all before, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to read through Canto 9 so you get the scope of it. So let's get going. Our passage at line 130 starts out, the angel, or it says he in the medieval Florentine, but the angel, because, you know, we've broken it up into sections for our podcast. The angel pushed open the door itself in the holy gate and said, go in. 
But I must warn you both that anyone who looks back will be made to turn back. So I want to focus right now on that line. Anyone who looks back will be made to turn back. There's another real big problem with this three-line bit, but let's just talk about that for a minute. Almost all glosses of those three lines point to the passage in Genesis of Lot's wife. Remember, Lot and his wife and daughters end up in Sodom. The angels come to save them. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities on the plain in a rain of fire. They leave in the middle of the night and they're told not to look back. And then Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Recently, a listener to this podcast, Donna, wrote me and had an interesting take on this line that I have to say that I've never heard before. And that is, she linked this line to Orpheus and Eurydice in Book 10 of the Metamorphoses of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Orpheus and Eurydice are out walking around. Uh, She gets set upon by some satyrs. She tries to get away from them. She gets bitten by a snake. She dies. And then Orpheus sings, uh, as Orpheus does, and ultimately some nymphs and others gather around and convince him to go down to the underworld. He goes down into the underworld. He meets the king of Hades. The king of Hades says, okay, you know, he's so undone by Orpheus's sorrow. He says, okay, I'll let Eurydice go, and you have to go up first from Hades, and she's going to follow you. But if you look back, Orpheus, then she will fall back to Hades forever. And you know what happens. He thinks she's slipping. He looks back. She slips into Hades forever, and Orpheus is completely disconsolate, in fact, in Ovid, just to push the story to its end, he gives up on women and takes up with young boys from here on out. So it's a story about Orpheus's looking back, and that might have something to do with this passage. So let me first talk about Lot's wife, and then let me come back to Orpheus. If we just think about Lot's wife, she turns back, she's turned into the pillar of salt, and this is because destruction is happening. If this is the reference to don't look back, here from the angel. Is there destruction behind us? In other words, if Dante looked back, would he be looking back at the equivalent of fire falling from the sky and burning up Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain? Not really, but maybe. I don't think that there's going to be any destruction of anti-purgatory and Inferno if Dante looks back, but there's a way in which for what follows this moment— Dante does have to destroy an infernal way of thinking. If you remember, we've been talking about the early bits of Purgatorio still have some of the cinders of Inferno about them. And there's a way in which now Dante has to let go of all that infernal and inferno lingo diction thought patterns to proceed up Mount Purgatory. So maybe there is a poetic destruction that lies behind us. Now, that doesn't mean the passages from Inferno aren't going to be referenced ahead of us, but it does mean that Dante has to shift his mind away from a former way of writing, creating, thinking. But let's also talk about Orpheus and Eurydice. If this is a reference to Ovid's great work and to that story incited in Book 10, we would have to say that Orpheus is a singer, a poet. And guess who else is a singer or a poet? 
Dante. And in this case, if, in fact, Dante turns around and looks back, the singer is going to lose his love. Beatrice, who lies ahead of us. And it may be a way in which the Orpheus-Eurydice dynamic here is more telling to the poetry, specifically because this passage ends at a metapoetic moment about hymns and singing and understanding some parts and not understanding all. Is the world gone behind us to go back to Lot's wife, is, in fact, the world destroyed behind us. Not really because of something else in these three lines. When the angel pushes open the door, he says, go in, but I must warn you, and I added the word both because the you is in the plural, and we haven't talked about this, but all that the angel has said has been addressed to both Dante and Virgil. In other words, Virgil's still in this. So here's my question for you. You know what my question is going to be. If Virgil turns around, does Virgil have to go back? Because that doesn't make any sense. Virgil is not supposed to be here anyway. In fact, Virgil can't be here. In fact, oh, dare I say it? Virgil shouldn't be here. This can't be a warning for Virgil, right? What does it matter if Virgil turns back? Oh, big deal. He's going to have to go back to hell. Well, you know what? He's going to have to go back to hell anyway. Who cares? Uh, It's so intriguing that Virgil is here and that the angel has been talking all along in the plural you, the two of you. Everything the angel has said has been directed at both of them. What's Virgil got to play in this? And there's a couple answers we could come up with, and these are completely speculative. One is, did Dante, at this point in the writing, intend Virgil to be saved? In other words, is there a way that Dante, as he was scoping out the poem ahead of him, thought, well, Cato, so maybe Virgil? And did Dante think that there was a way somewhere ahead of him that Virgil would actually get entrance into the good part of the afterlife? I don't know. That's completely speculative. But it can't account for why it's you both. Or is it that, in fact, uh, what do I want to say? The tragedy of Virgil is that he has to increasingly mimic the saved. He has to increasingly become part of the movement of the saved, even though he is dislocated from it. If that's the case, then Virgil's tragedy is deepening by the line. And we see the intense sorrow that Virgil is being subjected to all along, particularly when he's addressed by the likes of this angel. All right, now for the bad parts. (laughs) Or now for the tough parts, the next lines. When that sacred doors pens, and you should just know, I'm following Singleton here, that the word is a little bit obscure that's used in the medieval Florentine, and it probably refers to the door inside a larger door of a cathedral. Dante only uses this word once in comedy, and it seems that this refers to, you know how when you walk up, let's say, to Notre Dame or to the great cathedral in Milano. You know how the, the, the arches and the big gate doors and then down where you can walk in, there's a smaller door inside the giant door. 
that's probably what's referred to here. So it's not that the whole gate opens. It's that a small door and it opens. And when it does, the pins and the hinges creak. They roar. They're so strong and they sound out with so much metallic noise as they turn in their hinges that the Tarpeian rock didn't scream so loud nor seem so hard as when the good metalist was drawn off and it was all left barren. Okay, let's just start with the Tarpeian Rock. The Tarpeian Rock is a steep cliff on the side of the Capitoline Hill in Rome, one of the seven hills of Rome, kind of near the Forum. It's about 25 meters or 80 feet high, and it was used by the Romans as a method of capital punishment. If you were thrown off the Tarpeian Rock, of course, you fell to your death. And this was a common place for capital punishment. There's a whole long history of what's happened to the Tarpeian Rock, how the top of it's been scraped off by the Romans. Long history about it, which we don't actually need for this because there's a reference here to essentially looting it. And that's what is really important to us. There are two classical images that sit behind these Six difficult lines. One is from Lucan's Pharsalia. It's in Book 3, lines 108 through 168. And it's the moment when Julius overcomes the lone tribune Metellus to break open the portal of the Tarpeian Rock. And why that is important is behind that portal lies the treasury of Rome. Rome kept its treasury in a Fort Knox-like vault for U.S. listeners, a Fort Knox-like vault inside the Tarpeian Rock. Julius overcame Metellus looted the treasury, tore open the door, looted the treasury, all to pay for Julius's pursuit of Pompey and Cato. This is not a positive moment. This is, in fact, in Lucan's Pharsalia, a distinctly anti-Julius moment. This shows us what a tyrant Julius is, that he would rob the whole treasury for his personal gain and his personal vendetta against Pompey and Cato in order to finally become Caesar or emperor of what becomes the Roman Empire out of the Roman Republic. That's our first source. Our second source is the door in the Aeneid book, 6, lines 573 through 574, and there we're talking about the door to Tartarus. When the door to Tartarus swings open as Aeneas and the Sibyl cross through the underworld, it shrieks, and then they don't actually step into Tartarus. They just look over into Tartarus, into the pit. They peer inside into the gross punishments. These two references are probably sitting behind this passage, and you can kind of now tease out what's going on here, except it's super problematic. So let's talk about that. Why, before Dante enters purgatory, the promised land, the great bit of the afterlife where souls get to purgate themselves in anticipation of paradise, why this incredibly negative imagery about looting the treasury, about Julius, <laughs> about possibly looking into Tartarus, none of this is positive. It is all deeply classical imagery, and we'll talk about that in a second. So let's talk about a couple things here. One, why does the gate screech? Besides a reference to the way the Tartarus 
Tarpeian rock screeches or roars and the way the door to Tartarus re- screeches. Why does Dante need this door to screech now? Is it because it is rarely opened? I don't think so. There's some Dantistas who claim that the door creaks and screeches and roars. Needs some WD-40 because it's so rarely opened. But the angel just told us he was charged with airing in favor of opening rather than keeping it shut. So I don't know that I believe that. Does it roar because it's counter theology? Well, let me explain this. If you are born imbued with original sin and you are fallen in a Christian theology and you make it into the good part of the afterlife, is there a creaking of the hinges? You might think about this on a personal level. If you come out of great difficulties into a much better place in your life, might there be a creaking of the hinges at that moment? Might it not be a completely smooth transition? I certainly know that's how it's been in my life, and perhaps this is a an emotional way that we can feel this passage. Passing into the better part of the afterlife is not necessarily an easy or silent or, well, it does become, but at first, melodious transition? Or is it this way because Dante is corporeal? Is the gate screeching because the gate's like, no, wait, this guy's not dead yet. If that's the case, it doesn't quite make sense of why the angel is addressing both Virgil and Dante, unless you say the gate is screeching because Virgil's coming through it too, the damned Virgil. And so the gate's got all kinds of problems. It's saying, hey, angel, no way. Cut it out. Maybe it's all part of an emotional resonance of the passage, but we would say this. There is a way that Dante is going to become Julius. (laughs) Dante is about to rob the royal treasury. He is about to take the goods of the good part of the afterlife and put them in his poem. He's about to take God's treasury all the way up to the very top of paradise and write it, describe it, tell us what it is. So Dante is sort of like Julius, except Julius in the Pharsalia is super negative, and Dante's not. I have to say something that's ahead of us, and sorry, I don't mean to jump out of the passage ahead of us, but this is a move that Dante makes. Later, way on down the line, Dante is going to claim that comedy is the golden fleece, that he is the new Jason, and he has gone into the afterlife to find the golden fleece, and here it is. The thing you're reading is the new golden fleece. Well, Jason's theft of the golden fleece is super negative, and it causes all kinds of tragic repercussions in the original myth. But when it gets translated to Dante, it gets translated for the good of comedy. Well, maybe that's the same thing here. The bad of Julius's personal vendetta and robbing the Roman Republic's treasury is changed into the good of Dante essentially robbing God's treasury in order to give us what is now to come in comedy. All very difficult and made more difficult by the final seven lines of the canto. 
Let me read them first. I wheeled around to pay attention to a new sound, and I seemed to hear today in Laudamus in a polyphony of voices with a sweet tonality. Now, you should know that the word polyphony doesn't occur in the text. This is my interpretive understanding of what's going on here. We'll talk about this in a minute. I've stuck it in here to try to describe the sound of the hymn that Dante hears. It's the same sort of experience I have when I hear singers who are accompanied by an organ. That is, some words are understandable and Others are not. Okay, let's first talk about Te Deum Laudamus. This is We Praise You, O God, and perhaps the best-known Christian hymn, particularly in Dante's day. Let me give you a little background on it. It was alleged by mythology to have been spontaneously spoken either by St. Ambrose or St. Augustine at their baptism. They're different people who say different things, but one or the other of them allegedly spoke out this hymn spontaneously at their baptism. We now know that it was composed in the early 400s common era, but in Dante's day, he may still believe this mythology that one of these two saints spoke it spontaneously at their baptism. Also, what Dante knows is this is, of course, a very common hymn sung, but specifically sung when a person leaves this life to enter monastic or convent orders. When a person leaves this life and enters a life as a monk, a nun, an encloistered life, this is the hymn that is sung on that entrance. And Dante would certainly know that. We can think about that in terms of the poem. Our pilgrim is leaving the bad world behind and entering this space of the redeemed, which Dante would see as a monastic space. And as we will see as we progress through the poem, Dante will have more and more praise for the contemplative life, the monastic life, the life of prayer and contemplation. And Dante will become more and more enamored with this notion of the contemplative life as the highest form of human effort on this plane before the afterlife. We've already seen a touch of this way back in Inferno 2, when Beatrice is sitting there with a representative of the contemplative life, the whole Rachel Leah dynamic, and she gets up to come save Dante, find Virgil, and ultimately save Dante. We've seen this a little bit there, but this is going to become stronger and stronger in the poem, and it may account for the place of Te Deum Laudamus here as he enters purgatory. The pilgrim doesn't actually have this experience. The medieval Florentine is very clear that after the roaring of the gate, Dante wheels around to pay attention to a new sound, and he seems to hear Te Deum Laudamus. It doesn't say he hears it. It is definitely a quibble, a little gray. He seems to hear it, and then it gets grayer with this organ playing, and you can understand some words, but you can't understand others. This passage is so incredibly potent for us, for Dante's readers. Canto 9 ends with this idea that you can catch some of it, but not 
all of it. Maybe that's what Dante intends. Maybe that's what's happening in his poetics. Because you know, and I know, that the poem is going to get increasingly difficult. There may be a way that Dante right here is setting us up. Hey, what's ahead is hard, and you're going to catch some of it. Other parts of it you may not catch because you're hearing the organ, because voices are drowned out. This all relates back to the fact that Dante lives at the beginning of what we now call polyphony in music in Western culture. And polyphony is the singing of multiple voices, not together as modern people sing a hymn, but one line and then another line starts five, eight beats later, and then another line starts five, eight beats later, and they're singing the same line, or maybe they're singing the same line in fits, you know that this will ultimately become huge fugues on down the line in music. Dante lives at the beginning of this, and polyphony, of course, is something that you have to listen to. It's hard to listen to it because not everybody's singing the same words at once, and words slip in and out of focus. My husband sings with an early Baroque group, and I hear a lot of early Baroque music. I consider Bach a little too late for them. I hear a lot of early Baroque music, and Baroque music is very difficult to hear. This is more developed polyphony than Dante would know, because, of course, the words are slipping away from you as the voices are layered on top of each other, singing words out of sync with each other. Dante does live at the beginning of what will become the dominant form of musical art, and yet we should keep coming back to the fact that he seems to hear it here. He seems to hear multiple voices singing very sweetly, and he can't catch the words completely, which is why I added the word polyphony to the text, because that is the experience for the listener of polyphony, particularly the new form of polyphony in Dante's day, and for us today, who in fact listen mostly to monophony or maybe homophony, that is, everyone singing the same words at the same time, it is our experience of it and it would be his. But there's more to, to do here because it may be, again, that this is Dante's new way of writing, writing in such a way that I don't worry that you catch every point the way I was in Inferno. And notice that the end of Canto 9 vaults up into an imaginative space. It seems to be. I imagine it to be. And it's sort of like, and then this bit about music itself. Notice what happens in Canto 9. It takes fact, the hard facts of reaching this place, which include a dream, and then it gets to the angel's warning, which is back to hard facts. The dream is fudgy. The angel's warning is hard facts. And now we slowly vault back, and we've got a similar movement here. We've got classical imagery, the Tarpeian rock, reinterpreted as Christian comedy, as the singing of voices, a famous hymn, with an organ. The same thing that happened in Dante's dream with Ganymede and the eagle and all that bit, and then Virgil re-giving the dream its Christian cast happens here at the end of it, except now it's the poet who's doing it to us, not Virgil to the pilgrim. See how complicated this is? Do you see why there have been so many critics stumbling everywhere on this passage? Because I'm stumbling on it. Because it is super hard to come to terms with, and at the same time, super beautiful and metapoetic as you could 
ever possibly want. Canto 9 is overwhelmingly one of the best cantos that we have encountered so far in terms of what it requires out of us. But just wait till you see what's to come. I'd like to go back and read all of Canto 9 as a finish off here. And what I want to do is, rather than read it through in my initial rough translation, I want to read it through now in the better worked translation I gave it for these individual episodes. And so we'll give you a better idea of the flow of the Canto as a whole. So here we go. The concubine of ancient Tithonus was starting to glow white on the balcony of the east, as she did when she got up from her sweet lover's arms. Her forehead glittered with jewels, which were positioned in the shape of the cold animal that strikes people with its tail. From where we were, night had made it up two of the steps it climbs, so that the wings for the third were already flagging, when I who still had something of Adam about me, and overcome with sleep, lay back in the grass where all five of us were already seated. At the hour so close to morning that the swallow starts up her sad songs, perhaps as a memorial to her sorrows from ages ago, and when our mind, more like a pilgrim from our flesh, and less hemmed in by our thoughts, is a prophet, in its visions, in a dream, I thought I saw an eagle with golden feathers way up in the sky, its wings open and intent on a dive. It seemed to me I was in the very spot where Ganymede abandoned his own kin when he was lofted up to the supreme council. So I thought, maybe it's mere habit that makes that bird strike right here, disdaining to pick someone up from anywhere else with its claws. Then it seemed to me that after it wheeled about a bit, it shot down as terrible as lightning and ravaged me up to the sphere of fire. Up there, it seemed as if both it and I ignited. The imagined burning was so intense that my sleep was broken to bits. It wasn't any different from the way Achilles jumped up, straining his surprised eyes in a wide circle and not knowing where he was when his mother carried him asleep in her arms from Chiron to Skyros, from which point the Greeks would later take him away. Like that, I woke up without any trace of sleep gone from my face. I then turned pale like a guy who can't move because he's so afraid. No one else was beside me except my comforter. The sun was already up, more than two hours high, and my gaze was turned toward the sea. Don't be afraid, said my liege lord. Be steadfast, for all's going well with us. Don't bridle yourself, but give reins to all the strength you've got. At last, you've now gotten to purgatory. Check out the rock face there that encircles it, and note the entrance where it seems to gap open. A little while ago, in the early light just before the day's dawn, that is, When your spirit was asleep in you and you were lying on the flowers that adorned that place down there, a lady came and said, I am Lucy. Permit me to gather up this guy who sleeps so that I can quickly get him on his way. Sordalo and the other noble souls stayed put. She picked you up and once it had become light, she went on up the mountain. I then came along in her steps. She set you down right here, but first her gorgeous eyes showed me the entrance that's standing open. Then, at the same moment, both she and sleep withdrew from you. Like a man who finds reassurance in his doubts and finds his fear transformed into confidence when the truth is revealed to him, I myself changed. And when my guide saw that I was outside of worries, he started moving up the path, and I came along right behind him. 
heading for the heights. Reader, you'll certainly see how I'm raising the bar of my material. Don't marvel if I have to shore it up with more art. We pressed on until we got to the spot where at first it had seemed there might be a gap in the rocks or maybe a breach in the wall. I now saw a door with three steps that led up to it, each one a different color. The keeper of the gate hadn't yet uttered a word. As my eyes opened wider to make him out more clearly, I saw that he was seated above the upper step. His face was so bright that I couldn't bear to look at it. He had an unsheathed sword in his hand. It reflected his light rays back to us so much so that I turned my eyes away from him in vain. Speak from where you are. What is it you want, he began to say. Where is your escort? Take care that your coming here doesn't lead to your grief. A lady from heaven, my master replied to him, who is well acquainted with such things just now, said to us, Go on that way, just ahead is the gate. Even so, may she hasten your steps toward what is good, continued the keeper of the gate. Come forward, then, to these stairs of ours. We came on from there. The first step was made out of white marble, so polished and brilliant that I could see myself in it exactly as I appeared. The second was darker than aubergine, made of a rough, dry, crumbly stone, cracked lengthwise and widthwise. The third, which set its massive weight at the top, looked to me like porphyry. It was ignited with color, like blood that spills from a vein. Both of the feet of the angel were set on this step, although he was seated on the threshold, which seemed to be made of diamonds. Even with my best intentions, my good leader pulled me up these three steps and said, Call out to him in all humility to undo the door's bolt. I devoutly abased myself at the angel's holy feet. Then I struck my chest three times. Then I called out for mercy and asked to be let inside. The angel traced seven peas on my forehead with the tip of his sword and said, Make sure you wash yourself once you're inside of these wounds. Ashes or dirt dug up dry would be the color of his clothes. He took out two keys from underneath them. One was made of gold and the other of silver. First with the white, then with the yellow, he touched the door so that I found my contentment. Whenever one of these keys doesn't do the trick, doesn't turn inside of the lock, this walkway won't open up, he said to us. One key is more precious, but the other needs a lot more art and ingenuity before it'll unfasten the lock, because it's only this one that ultimately disentangles the knot. I got these from Peter, who told me to err in favor of opening up rather than keeping the thing closed, if only a person should fall down at my feet. Then the angel pushed open the door in the holy gate and said, Go in, but I must warn you both that anyone who looks back will be made to turn back. And when that sacred door's pins, which were strong and sounded out with lots of metallic noise, turned in their hinges... The Tarpeian rock didn't scream so loud, nor seem so hard as when the good metalus was drawn off, and it was all left barren. I wheeled around to pay attention to a new sound, and I seemed to hear Tadeum Laudamus in a polyphony of voices with a sweet tonality. It's the same sort of experience I have when I hear singers who are accompanied by an organ. That is, some words are understandable, and others are not. 
that Kanto is worth the price of admission. That is just crazy. All the seeming in the dream and the seeming at the end and the turn toward poetic language and the language inside the dream and the classical imagery versus the Christian resolutions. Wow, that Kanto is insane. Open-ended allegories, P's and steps and oh my gosh. This is why you walk slowly across comedy to experience this complex and yet beautiful poetry. I hope that you will subscribe to this podcast, that you will rate it, like it, do those things that help keep it afloat. I really appreciate all the support you can give it. And otherwise, we're going to go on and find the first purgating souls in Canto of Purgatorio as we continue our walk across the known universe with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's keep our shoes on for much more. Hey there, if you've made it out to the back of this podcast, let me just say that I would like to ask for a little help. As you may know, this podcast has been on the air now for over three years, and I never thought it would last this long. I intended to walk through comedy, but I didn't really actually believe that this would all happen. It's rather overwhelmed my life, and I have turned down sponsor offers for the podcast because I want it to be exactly what I want it to be without anyone telling me what to do. I want notes from producers. So given that... I'm asking for help. There's a PayPal link in both the podcast player and in the show notes. You can find that on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. That link will take you again to a PayPal account and you can donate to keep this podcast working. I would say that a buck, a dollar, a Canadian dollar, a euro, a pound per episode that you've enjoyed, that would be terrific. Listen, 50 cents, half a quid per episode that you've enjoyed, that would be terrific. A small donation helps me then pay the royalties for the music, the royalties for the sound effects. It helps me pay my streaming service fees, my hosting service fees, my editing fees. It helps in all of those ways, in all of the ways that this podcast has overwhelmed me. Listen, if you don't do this, no worries. This podcast will continue on as my passion project. But I just thought that now that we're so far in, I'd still like to ask you for help. Thanks so much. And if not, no worries. We're going to still walk with Dante.